0: Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. <laughs> My name is Dodds. Uh, I'm one of the pastors uh, here, and I'm really excited to be with you all in this second week of Advent. Um, we've been in the book of Isaiah. We will be in the book of Isaiah through Advent. And um, uh, Brandon opened us, opened us up last week um, and uh, took us through the first few verses of Isaiah. I just want to let you all know that um, this may be a disappointment, but I have no Julia Roberts references in my notes. Uh, for those of you who are new, I think Brandon works Julia Roberts movies into every single sermon. Um, somehow, somehow, it's a feat. Um, so like, uh, like Clint said, Advent is a, is a time during the year when we focus our attention on the reality that God entered our world as a human being. And we believe as, as Christians, that that changes everything about life, about humanity, uh, about the purpose of life and our ideas, about what it means to, to truly live. Um, so in the book of Isaiah, we are going to see uh, Isaiah as a prophet of God, meaning he is a messenger of God sent by God to God's people, the, the people of Israel, in order to remind them of who who God is, what he's done, and how they should respond. Um, And before we jump into the text, I just want to tell you a story about Ian and Larissa Murphy. Um, Many of you may already know their story. Um, If you do, I'd I'd encourage you maybe just for a moment to forget the story and hear it again for the first time. Um, So Larissa and Ian, a couple, they met, in college in 2005 and they dated for just under a year before everything in their lives changed. Um, Ian had spent a September morning uh, working for his dad and he was en route by car when uh, he was hit um, by an SUV and the accident was nothing short of devastating. Um, Ian suffered severe brain injury. He had to undergo severe brain surgery, major brain surgery. Um, and during his recovery, um, it's amazing, but Larissa moved into his parents' house. And he and she cooked meals. And she helped with physical therapy. Um, and she continued to date Ian. They continued to go out on dates. And she said... Um, she said he couldn't walk, he couldn't talk, he couldn't feed himself. And She said, I was convinced that anyone who was watching our dates happen was thinking that we were probably the strangest, the strangest couple. She said, but we had a, we just had wonderful time together. So Larissa found out a number, I guess a number of months later, that Ian right before the accident had been looking for rings. Um, and she said, I realized the kind of commitment that he was willing to make to me, the kind of commitment that he was thinking about. She said, I think, she said, for me, I think what helped us make this commitment was remembering that if I had been in that car, that Ian would not have left me. We love each other. And four years later, in 2010, uh, they were married, and they've been married ever since. Now, a story like this grips us all. Probably, maybe it grips us in different ways. We hear the story and we think, I-, "I don't think I could ever do that," or "I I really wouldn't want to do that," or maybe even some of us think this just it's just amazing. It's just an incredible act of not just kindness, but sacrifice. And the story itself being inspiring, heartbreaking, and amazing. But I think, a, I think really in like the, real, like the recesses of our, of our souls, it's just, it's just a story that we hear and we think, that's amazing. I wish that could be my story in this way. To experience and know a commitment, a deep commitment, and a deep love so deep that it creates an unshakable relationship, a relationship that can't change, no matter if you can walk, if you can eat, if you can talk, if you can be interesting. We look up and down and really all around for this kind of commitment and love. We look for it in everything that we do because we don't we really don't just want a job we want fulfillment and we don't really just want a relationship we don't want just friendship or spouse what we want is we want to be known at an incredibly deep level and we want to be loved at an incredibly deep level and we want to be committed to in a very deep level So we don't just want connection we want a relationship that lasts And deep down when we hear Ian and Larissa's story, we know this, that deep commitment and deep love create deep relationship. And we are so desperate for it, we're so in need of it, and the Bible has something to say about why we long for this kind of commitment and this kind of fulfillment. So, Isaiah 61 I think it's important that we just give a little bit of context. We'll get into more of that, but I think just for the start. So Isaiah, this messenger of God, is writing to the ancient people of Israel, a people that God had intended for himself. He pulled this people out of obscurity, and he said, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. We're going to have this relationship where I'm going to know you, and you're going to know me, and the rest of the world is going to know what I'm like through you. They're gonna see how you live, they're gonna see how you love, they're gonna see how you treat each other and they're gonna know that, wow, they must serve a pretty amazing God if that's how they've chosen to live. But Israel repeatedly looked for other people, other things, other gods. They looked across their sort of nation, national lines and looked for other people to make agreements with and relationship with. They constantly dishonored God and disobeyed Him, the God of the universe who had saved them and who loved them. So in response to that, God sends Isaiah to point out their wrongdoing, to call them back to trust in God, the God who saved them. So let's pick up in, in verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense. Now whenever there's a four, especially here, whenever there's a for, we, we should always read it as a because. So the four is here pointing back to something that Isaiah just said. So this is what Isaiah just said. He said, I have good news for the poor from God. He is going to comfort those whose hearts are broken. He's going to open the the jail cells for the prisoners he's going to let people who've been in captivity go free and i'm and he and he is going to show how great and glorious he is by trading your shame and your dishonor for for everlasting joy so because the lord loves justice this is what he's going to do because i love justice says god this is what i'm going to do i'm going to create a way for everlasting joy to actually be possible. Now, it seems pretty great, right? Like I have everlasting joy on tap. I think we're all on board, right? Most of us, good. About seven people. Um, So I think that we're we're on board with this, but it's not the whole story. And that's why we have to consider the entirety of, of Isaiah's message. Because the people of Israel were acting unjustly in two very distinct ways, and these are very important. Number one, they were robbing God of glory and worship. Israel, the people of Israel, had a relationship with God where they brought things to Him. They brought offering. They brought songs. They brought thanksgiving. They brought appreciation. They brought confession. But they brought things to Him in order to honor Him as God, in order to recognize Him as God. But then the prophet Isaiah comes and he says, God knows your heart. And he knows that really the reason that you're doing those things is because you're seeking your own pleasure. You're coming essentially with, with blood on your hands. Like you're, you're offering things to God and saying this is actually a sacrifice for me. But you're doing it for yourself and you're doing it to put God in your debt. And he knows. So that's one thing that they were doing. That's one way that they were acting and in, in, in really in just direct opposition to God. But he said the second thing that you're doing is you're dealing completely unfairly with the people around you you're not loving the weak you're not fighting for the oppressed you're 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 actually not calling out wickedness and and all of your dealings he says in Isaiah 59 he talks about how everything that you deal with is in deceit everything has an underlying motive everything's a lie and you're quick to run to that evil and you're doing it regularly So, this is evidenced, This really, this evidenced a deep heart issue with the people of Israel because they were desperately for themselves and they were using God and using other people for their own gain. So, what does God say? How does God view this? How does he feel about this? He says, I love justice and I hate justice. Robbery and wrong the word robbery and wrong. They're actually because of that and they're sort of it's a word That's kind of drawn together. It's called the word. I think it's called hendiatus, but it basically is one word and it basically just means It means that it means iniquity so immoral gross unfair behavior So I love justice and I hate injustice I love when things are right and I hate when things are evil now God is saying in this and the way I want you to, I want us all to catch this God is saying this is who I am and this is who you are I love justice and you love evil we are opposed I'm opposed to how you're living I hate how you're living it's important that we catch that when God says, I love justice, that we, that we really know what justice means. And this was a revelation for me in particular, because when I think of justice, I just think of the things that are wicked and people that are wicked being appropriately punished. But justice isn't just that, the, that evil is punished, but that what is right is upheld. That It's both of those things. And just as an aside, it's a wonder to me that God loves and hates something. Because it tells us this, this is, a, this is a, huge, a huge window into what God is like. Because he could say, he could say very easily, I'm for justice and I'm against injustice. But he says, I love justice and I hate injustice. So what that tells us about God is that we're dealing with a God here that is not some just cold, objective judge in the sky. He is a viscerally, emotionally invested God that cares about justice. He cares about right. He cares about good. And He cares about evil. It means that He's not distant. He's not above or beyond right and wrong. We can't play the game of How does, what does God really feel about the injustice of the world? We know it right here. When you oppose me and turn away from me and you hurt other people, that is what I hate. And so by God's judgment, Israel is blind to both what's evil and what's good. There's a portion of Isaiah 59 earlier where he, he basically says, you all you all are like hungry bears wandering around looking for justice. Like you are ravenous animals looking for justice. And the problem is, is that in your, in your ravenous, sort of in this, in this need, in this hunger, you're actually a danger to yourself and to others. Think about a bear. A bear is very dangerous on its own. But a hungry bear is dangerous to itself and to everyone else. He says, you're blind men walking around in a room looking for the wall, and you can't find it. So God says, you want justice so bad, but you're so blind that you can't tell the difference between right and wrong. and In your blind hunger, you've forgotten me and you've torn one another apart, and I am against that. I hate that. So what does God have to say about Israel and their great plight what is his response I will faithfully give them their recompense in other words I will certainly pay back injustice and wrong now if those two things essentially if those two things were jobs God is saying I will make sure that they're paid appropriately I will make sure that injustice and iniquity, injustice, and unfairness, I'll make sure that those are paid appropriately. I'll see to it. I will be faithful to see to, it, to see to it. Excuse me. So God has judgment and punishment that he's going to bring against those who deal in these things. He's promising Israel this is going to happen. I—I I think what, I think another thing that we need to catch, and this is just an aside, but God never deals with us without addressing who we really are. If you look at the chapters leading up to Isaiah 61, from like even from just like 53 to 60, you'll see that over and over again, God just says, "This I know this about you. You do this. And it's always in, in dealing with sin and evil. But he, what he wants to get to is God, God will deal with who we really are. And to a certain extent, I realize that for a lot of us, we hear that, and that kind of, that's sort of a scary moment initially. But a proper diagnosis from God of who we really are is a loving diagnosis. God never deals with us without addressing our sin. He says, This is who you are, and this is what you've done, and this is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. Now, here's. The first bit of, of difficult truth. The very thing that God is asking Israel to be, which is just and fair. Love me, honor me, and treat other people really well. Treat them fairly. Love the weak. Provide for them. Call out wickedness. Avoid evil. It's the same thing that He's asking of all humanity. See, we we are Israel. There may be, there's definitely been some medical advances and some technological advances, but we are still human as Israel was human. And this is calling, this calling is for us as well because we're not different. And God has called us all to live according to what is pleasing to Him and good for the rest of humanity. So, something has to be done about Israel's injustice. Something has to be done about our injustice. We can't ignore the wrong that we've done, and we can't ask God to ignore his stance on justice. To do either would completely ignore the truth. We would either ask God to overlook what he sees in us, or we would ask him to stop loving justice and to start loving evil which is exactly the opposite of who he is. So what is the text asking us? What is Isaiah asking Israel to do? What is is Isaiah asking us to do? That we acknowledge and love God selflessly, that we care for and provide for the weak and the oppressed and the marginalized, and that we fight against deception and evil. God says to us, He says, essentially, he's like, be like me. Live like me in the world. Love justice. Honor me. And take care of those who are on the margins. Love what is right. So that's what Isaiah is asking of us. But the problem, the problem is that we are hopelessly preoccupied. We are hopelessly preoccupied with ourselves And we don't have the life that we want. If we're honest, that is where all of us, that's where all of us, that's the water that we all swim in, that we are preoccupied with ourselves and we don't have the life that we want. We're just like Israel and we believe that in order to secure fulfillment, we must fight for ourselves first, for the right job, for the right relationship, the right spouse, the right pay, the right hobby, the right schedule, and we just become unable to love anyone else deeply because we already have our hands full with ourselves. So as a result, when we are this preoccupied with ourselves, I mean, Isaiah has diagnosed it here. He He says that we begin to use God and people to get what we want. We play the functional game of who is going to love me most and who is going to be committed to me most. And what happens when we feel like we're not being loved or when we're not being honored as we should? We leave. We leave. We disengage. We find something else. We find someone else. And that proves beyond the shadow of a doubt that we really are in it for ourselves. We get mad at other people for not giving us what we need. There's really, when we're fighting for someone to give us that love, that commitment, that assurance, and they don't, we can either find ourselves in one of two camps, one of how dare you not love me, or in the opposite of I was expecting this to come. I know that I'm that awful. It makes sense that you don't love me. So we either get mad with other people or we get mad with our, mad at ourselves for not being enough to hold people's love, to hold their commitment. And we either stay angry or we despair, but neither ends, neither of these, none of these ends in a feeling of being loved or fulfilled. We mistakenly think, and this is, I really want us to catch this, but we mistakenly, we mistakenly think that God says, When when God says, I hate injustice, that he's only talking about the world around us. When When I hear this and I hear, I hate injustice, what I think of is ISIS and San Bernardino and Paris and Colorado and how many other 360 mass shootings that have happened this year. But Scripture says that the darkest part of the world is the human heart. So really, when God says, I hate injustice, He absolutely is thinking about San Bernardino. But He's also thinking about every human heart in the universe. God is against, if he is against injustice, he is against all injustice across the universe. Scientists have, and this may seem really off topic, but I, I promise you I'll make it, I'll make, it make sense. <laughs> but scientists have reported that the average ocean depth is around 14,000 feet. And that leaves a lot of mystery A lot of room for mystery. A lot of room for the mythical and everything in between. But it is a wonder to consider the fact that 95% of our own oceans have never been seen. They're unexplored, unknown, and unseen by the human eye. The fact that we know nearly nothing about our own oceans should bring us some pause. And I think... The reason we know so little is because the ocean is so great. The ocean is so large that it is that unknowable. But how little, if, if that's the least, if that's the, we only know 5% of our own ocean, it's tangible, it's there, then how little do we know of our own hearts, the place where no human eye gets to look? Even our own. How little then do we know about what we need? How about in the place where there seems to be infinite death, depth? We cannot trust. Essentially, we can't trust our own view of things. We need to be shown truth from the, out, from the outside. We need truth from outside of ourselves to bring light here because according to Scripture, there is no light Here. it reminds me of Israel. I mean, that's what He says to them. He says, you are so blind. He said, this, it's great. He says, you're like blind people walking around in noonday. Like the sun is shining and you can't see anything. And we're not different than that. As human beings, we're not different than that. We are blind. And our need to be deeply loved, our need for deep commitment is so deep that nothing in this finite world can possibly measure it or satiate it. And honestly, if we're really honest, even when we do acknowledge God and love other people, we make that a, we make that a feat, we're gonna go and help the oppressed, that we find that it doesn't that, that just the action doesn't heal our hearts. It doesn't get to the core. It doesn't get to the depth of what is going on. We are just like Israel. We are ravenous bears looking for love and fulfillment and finding that nothing satisfies. We're still hungry. We don't know right from wrong, and we don't know the depth of our heart's cry. So we ignore God, we use people, and we get what we're most desperate for. And when it runs out in this person, we go to this person. And when it runs out in this job, we go to this job. How are you guys feeling? Is this good? Yeah? I just wanted to gauge the temperature of the room. Um, it, sh- it should give us pause. It should give us pause to consider. This is a bleak, this is a bleak state, a bleak outlook. But it's God telling us this is who you really are. And it's a grace to know who we really are, because when we know who we really are we can begin to not pretend. We have a need for love and commitment that nothing in this world seems to meet, but to ignore the need that continues to stay, to ignore that hunger, that ravenous hunger, or to harden ourselves to that need would be dehumanizing. We need to be loved in such a way And committed to in such a way that it frees us from using everyone and everything around us as a means to an end. We need to be loved like Larissa loves Ian in a committed, lasting, and real way. And that's why the rest of verses 8 and 9 are so incredible and completely change this story. How will God deal with the injustice and robbery and, wrong, and wronging of himself and the oppressed. How is he going to deal with this? Let's continue verse 8 and 9. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. And all who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. So God says... We're reading this correctly. God says, I'm going to bring judgment against the injustice and wrong of the whole universe. And the way I'm going to do it is by establishing an everlasting covenant with the purveyors of that injustice. How is that? How is that possible? How can God do that? God can't suspend or lessen his standards of perfect justice, nor can we ever hope to live out holistically just lives. There is a tension there that needs to be settled. Who we are and who God is. What we desire and what God desires. The only way, the only way, that God can create this deep relationship with us in covenant is that if he does everything for us if he creates a covenant relationship through his own action and that's that's what covenant is it's a deep lasting promise of blessing it's a wonderful blend of deep legal commitment and all-encompassing deep love where God commits so deeply to us that we can't help but respond in love. And where we're so deeply loved that we can't help respond in commitment. It's more intimate than any relationship and more binding than any legal contract. That means that we are Ian. We are spectators and beneficiaries to this deep love and deep commitment that God is promising to us. We can't talk. We can't speak. We can't feed ourselves. We need someone to feed us. And he says, I'm going to do that. How is that possible? Only through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. In Jesus' life, we experience God's deep love for us as he allowed his immortality to become mortal, as he allowed his strength to become weakness, his wealth to become poverty. God allowed himself to become a man and to be killed for our iniquity. He allowed his glory to be plunged into the darkest, sinful recesses of our hearts. And like Isaiah 53 says, that he laid all of our wrong, he laid all of our injustice, all of the wrong of the universe on Jesus. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, and all of the evil of the universe was counted as his own, he was judged for injustice, even though, according to 1 Peter, he had no injustice in him the justice of the cross is this that God the Father's hatred of injustice and wrong was fully poured out and fully satisfied the injustice of the cross is that God the Father held God the Son in his innocence responsible for it all this is how Paul can tell us that God is both the just he is both right but he's also the justifier he is the one who makes justification of those who believe in Christ on the cross Jesus Christ completely fulfilled the just expectations of God the Father so that God could and would love you and me without reservation and without condition because all conditions were met in the perfect, sinless life of Christ. And all the hatred that God had for injustice was poured out on Him, and all that is left is the blessing that Jesus secured in His own perfect sacrifice. All that is left is only deep love and deep commitment sealed in a deep covenant relationship that He alone holds by His power through the finished work of Christ on the cross, and it will last forever. What kind of offspring does this create? What kind of people does this create? A people who are so loved and cared for that they now are free to seek the care of others. A people whose most intimate needs have been met in Christ so they're now free to no longer use people as a means to an end. But to help them pursue fulfillment in the only place that's possible, in Christ Himself. A people who are so committed to pursuing justice in the context of relationship where they no longer have to pretend with one another. And even when there's friction, no one is bailing on anyone. A people who are so aware of their own heart level bankruptcy, but also keenly aware of how God has loved them and engaged them that they see to the needs of the weakest and poorest and most marginalized in our city. So, Jim, because of what Christ has done, we are free to seek the good of others because our ultimate good has already been sought and secured. And what that means is our parishes can be really messy. That is okay. I pray that our parishes are full of the weak and the marginalized and the overlooked and the oppressed because God saw us in that state and He came after us and we too can go after people so what's this mark that that Isaiah is talking about of these of these people that will be known they'll be in the midst of people they'll be acknowledged as those that are blessed by God God has loved us in the way that we need to be loved in an infinite deep committed way He has loved you so deeply. He has committed to you forever. So now you are free to not use anyone else to feel more committed to, to feel more loved by because you have been loved to the hilt and beyond in Christ. And that creates a people who have joy and freedom or reconciled relationships, sacrificial love, and a A come what may people is created. Sojourn, the Christ of Advent was outward facing and he brought us into the life of the Trinity. That's why our parishes are more than support groups. Each parish exists as a family who will now reach into the brokenness of our city and welcome others as family. It means that we too will be a people who are deeply committed and deeply loving to one another and our city. Jesus sacrificed himself for our collective and individual good. He came to us, and so now we can go to others. And we can bring the Christ of Advent to them. Let me pray for us.